such love and sorrow meet. O'er thorns composed so rich a crown. And they're trying to convince us that we need these cheap songs with seven words. You just have to repeat them 11 times. Seven, 11 songs to get you pumped up. I'm telling you, if you've got a Christ living inside, these hymns filled with doctrine and Bible, what a blessing. What a blessing. One of the reasons they don't have it is because, first of all, most of them aren't saved. But even if they are saved, uh, it takes a lot of work, years of work, to make a hymn beautiful. Now, you can make it sound good in a couple minutes. It takes a lot of work, and they're not willing to invest the time to make it happen. We're grateful. Thank you, ladies. That was beautiful. I'm thankful for a Savior. Hallelujah. Acts chapter 22 this morning. Acts chapter number 22. When you find your place, if you would, stand in honor of the Word of God. Acts chapter 
number 22. The last, the book of Acts we know is in large part the, the starting history of the local church. And how Paul, its greatest missionary and a church planner, has a lot to do with it. And we know he was directly um, responsible for penning the book of Acts through Luke. And um, we know this is the story involved in that. At the very end of Acts, starting at about Acts 22, it zeroes in on Paul's last, it's years really, but last moments if you would. And his final journey to Rome. And in Acts chapter 22, we start the beginning of that journey that ultimately takes him before Caesar and ultimately it costs him his life. But this is the beginning of that story and it starts in the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to pick up the story starting in verse number 22. Paul had just got done preaching to the Jews there at the temple And the Jews, in like manner, as we have seen repeatedly, even in the life of Christ, respond with great violence. And uh, we see taking place there, starting in verse number 22. And they gave him audience unto this word, and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air... The chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, and here's our text phrase, But I was freeborn. Then straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him. And the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman and because he had bound I'd like to take just a few moments this morning, if we could, and I'd like to look at this phrase that's highlighted here in verse number 28, in the end of that verse where Paul says, but I was free born. John Muniz, if you would pray for us, please. Man, you may be seated. Freedom is mentioned in the Bible only two times. The word freedom. One time is in the book of Leviticus, and it's in reference to um, the rules that were put forward and passing judgment on someone that had sinned. And the only other time freedom, the word is mentioned in Scripture, is here in our text. During the Roman days, there were, as most of us know, um, Scores, if not thousands, of slaves. 
Most of these slaves were people that the Romans had conquered in all their many conquests as they uh, trampled over country after country. And they would, as they would swallow up these countries, uh, some of them would be shipped back to Rome as slaves. And if the best case scenario, whoever was put in charge of that particular region would put those people under servitude. So basically, if you were in the Roman Empire, if you were not born a Roman by blood, at some point you would be put under servitude under the Roman Empire. A freedom, there were those, uh, I'm sorry, those that were not Roman by blood, yet were free, fell into two classifications. So you had the Romans and they held all different types of positions. You had the slave class and then there was two classes of people, not born Roman, but yet were considered to be Roman citizens. And they were classified as two different types of people. One was considered to be called a freed Man or a freed woman. And then the other was classified as being freeborn. The freedman was one who had been a slave earlier in his life, and at some point during his life, he had gained his freedom. There were several reasons or ways, if you would, that a man or woman could gain their freedom from slavery. Some was through a great sum of money. Maybe it was family that shipped money in or or more often than not, as they served these Romans as slaves, sometimes they would be allowed certain time that they could serve others on their own and gave, gain a, a little bit of money. And they would save this money over an extended process of time. And uh, if the uh, slave owner allowed it, at some point they could buy their freedom. That was one way. Another way that they could buy their, uh, buy their freedom or gain their freedom was maybe through an act of heroism. Sometimes uh, maybe they would save. Obviously, there was a lot of violence in the Roman Empire. Um, people always trying to get over another. And if a slave stepped in the way and uh, saved the life of that master, sometimes they would, in a matter of gratitude, gain them their freedom. And then there was the gladiators. That Sometimes if they served their master and uh, through many victories, gained their master lots of money because it was all about gambling, then at that moment, if they reached a certain amount of money or victories, they might gain their freedom. And then there was some, the least amount, but there were some that had served their master faithfully for years, and if they had been a very good servant, and a lot of times, uh, depending on the slave, they would become very close to the master, maybe because they were exceptionally learned, maybe they had taken in this slave, and in that particular country where that slave was from, maybe they held a high position, and uh, had gone to schooling, and were able to help this master uh, reach new heights, much like we would have seen Joseph back in Egypt, where uh, he would be keeping the account of Potiphar, and you would have slaves that would do that, and after an extended period of time, uh, there would, they would grow very close together, and usually towards the end of that slave's life, as a uh, token of generosity, they would give that person their freedom. Now, that freedom obviously wouldn't befit them much, because they were later on in their life, um, but if they had children that were born to them, then those children would automatically be freeborn. And that was the reason for that generosity, if you want to call it that. So regardless of how a person was, became a freed man or freed woman, it cost them 
a great deal. Whether money or acts of heroism or maybe their lives spent in servitude, and that's what it cost them. That's the position that we would have found this chief captain in. There was a chief captain of the Roman army there in Jerusalem. He obviously had been uh, um, swallowed up by the Roman uh, um, uh, machine, if you would, and turned into servitude. And at some point, maybe through a gladiator or sometimes they would even gain their freedom by uh, a certain rich person might be called into service in military. And what they could do is if a slave was there, they could put their slave into service in their stead. Maybe that's how that uh, centurion or this chief captain made it. But we don't know the details. All we know is this chief captain in his admission to Paul said, I am a freed man. I am a Roman citizen by great cost. It reminds me, uh, even when they were considered to be a freed man, There was great restrictions put on these freedmen. They still retained the last name of the owner. Because when a slave came in, they were automatically given the last name of the owner so that you knew whose slave that person belonged to. So even they were a freed man, they still retained the last name of the owner. They were still often provided for by the owner and given a degree of Freedom, even though they had been granted freedom or Roman citizenship. They were often under the supervision of the owner and were still accountable to him. He was responsible for them. Even as uh, we would be for our children, they were treated as such. Even if that slave happened to be in his 40s, 50s, and 60s, he was still considered to be the child, if you would, of the owner. They were freed, but they were not independent. And from the Roman citizenry, they were considered to be damaged goods. They could not hold positions of authority, could not hold positions of office, could not be considered for the Senate. The bottom line was this, a freed man was considered to be a Roman citizen, but there were great limitations to this title. This sounds very similar, if you would, to the freedom experienced through religion in good works. Because you may experience a degree of freedom, but you're still going to retain the last name of your owner. You're still considered to be a child of your slave owner. You're still provided for by your master. You're still under the supervision of your owner and you are accountable to him. You are free to a degree, but not independent. You may receive a title of citizen of that church or religion, but it's an empty title. You see, Paul found himself in a very different situation. See, Paul wasn't a freed man. He was free born. Now, we know that Paul was born into a city of Tarsus in Cilicia, uh, which would be modern-day Turkey. And he was born into a Jewish family. So, without a doubt, this would have been a conquered area. So, it wouldn't have been a stretch to understand that Paul's family would have been a slave to a Roman at some point. 
we see the surprise that was on the, the great chief captain's face when he looked at Paul and said, what, you're freeborn. Wait, you're a Jew. How are you freeborn? Because the chief captain understood that if you were a Jew, you were probably a slave. Which means at some point in Paul's past, he had someone, a parent or maybe grandparent, that had paid a sacrifice in order for him to be freeborn. But what we see in this passage that I'd like to highlight for a moment this morning is the difference that takes place when Paul's citizenship is made made known. We see in verse number 29, straightway they departed from him, uh, which should have examined him. Guess what happened the moment they knew he was a citizen of Rome? All of a sudden, the accusations that they were bringing were not as serious as they previously had thought. And not only in the minds of those that were his accusers did things change, but we see that things changed in the mind of the chief captain because that very first tells us that he was all of a sudden feared because he had bound him. Imagine if he had actually gotten to the place where he had scourged him as a Roman citizen and then found out. The chief captain knew that since he was only a freed man, if he were to take a freeborn Roman citizen and inflict scourging upon him without having been condemned, uh, that it would be his life on the line. Because he realized that the citizenship to Rome placed Paul on a list of untouchable. I'd like to draw a correlation this morning to a much grander free birth. I'm glad today I don't stand before you a freed man. I stand before you a born again free man. I don't have an allegiance to a previous master. He has no title over me. I do not hold his last name. He is no longer my master because there was a day on October the 19th, uh, 1999, where I fell on my face before an almighty God and I was given a new birth and at that moment I was freeborn, free from the past claims on my life of the previous father, the devil. The Bible tells us in John chapter 3, Jesus Christ said unto Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 7, he repeats it again, ye must be born again. And later, he's talking to the Jews in John chapter number 8, and Jesus Christ tells them this, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Now, I'm not going to uh, uh, put the Romans on any pedestal here. We know that everything about their society was amoral against God, and at the very best, wicked. But if I could for just a moment, I'd like to take a couple things we see in this passage. And I'd like to compare the difference that was made once Paul was known to be a citizen of Rome. And the difference that benefits those that are free born into the kingdom of God. The first difference I see we found in verse number, or in chapter number 23, in verse number 28. Acts 23, verse number 28. This is 
the chief captain, he's writing a letter unto the governor, who is Felix. And he's writing a letter to the governor saying, I'm about to send you someone and I want to give you the backstory of why I am sending him to you. And we'll get into that a little bit more, but the point I want to make is found in verse number 28 and 29. And he says this, And when I, the chief captain, would have known the cause, wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And later in Acts chapter 25, in verses 18 and 19, Festus further declares to Agrippa, in light of this uh, a grievance that was brought against Paul, he says this there in verses 18 and 19, when, he, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own superstitions. Here's the point I want to make. When Paul was considered to be a Roman, and then when they heard of his Roman citizenship, he was, if I could, we see the benefit being that we are redeemed from the burden of the law. You see, the Jews came before the Romans and said, this man deserves to die because he is not keeping the law. And because of this not keeping the law, we would love for you to let us kill him. And the Romans looked at Paul and as they looked at him as a citizen of their country, they certainly had zero respect for the Jewish laws. And if you would, for just a moment, bear with me. And basically, his Roman citizenship gave him a free out from under the Jewish superstition. You know one of the greatest benefits of being born again free is that I am no longer have to be a burdened by the law. Now, now, I'm not saying you can go out and kill somebody tomorrow and that's okay. That's certainly not what I'm saying. I'm not talking about, I agree, if you do not observe the law in your daily life, you're going to have a very miserable life. I mean, if you don't end up in prison, you might wish you did. I, I'm not here to say that the law has no effect on us, but I'm talking about your citizenship. I, I'm talking about the country or the kingdom to which you belong. And the reality is this, when I am placed freeborn into the kingdom of God, guess what burden the law has upon me and my eternal destiny? None. And in the eyes of God, he's not looking at me and saying, he has broken the law, therefore, this is the consequence. When I stand before God and I am one day revealed to him, he is not going to look at me and say, okay, according to you, this is what you did and this is what you didn't do. That's not what's going to happen. Because the moment I was born again into the kingdom of God, I am no longer compared in my eternal state, I am no longer looked as a comparison to the law. I am looked at as in the righteousness of Christ, and the law has no effect upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Go with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter number 4. We see this illustrated exceptionally clear. Galatians chapter 4, the entire book of Galatians, deals with the subject of law versus grace. And where the balance lies in all of these things. Galatians chapter 4 verse number 
1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why? Verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law. Why? That we might receive the what? Adoption of sons. I understand many of you probably understand this, but adoption of sons. Adoption in the Bible is not about placing you in a new family. Adoption was the process by which you were now in, you were in control of the inheritance. So he's saying here at the beginning of this verse, he says, hey, listen, when you're a child, you and the servant have the same standing. You were born to me. The servant was not. But as a child, when it comes to the inheritance, you're the same. But there comes a time and there was a ceremony that was held and it was an adoption ceremony. And as that child became of age, they would have this adoption ceremony. And this adoption was now you have full rights to the inheritance of the father. I'll tell you what happened the day I got saved. Uh, I, I, did, I didn't just change families. At the moment I was saved, there was a special ceremony that took place. And in that ceremony, I was adopted into the family of God. And because of that adoption, I am now a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Amen. Look at verse number six. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a what? Servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Look at verse number 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Verse number 1 of chapter number 5, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Stand fast, therefore, where? In the liberty wherewith. Christ hath made you free. Now, yes, I understand he's made us free from a lot of things. I am free from the sins of the past. I am free from the guilt of the past. I am free from going to hell. I am free from a lot of things. But in this context, it's not dealing primarily with free from all of those things. It's talking about being free from the burden of the law. The law was not given. Go back to chapter number 3. You're already there. Galatians chapter number 3, verse number 24. Gives more light to this context. Wherefore, the law. This is the purpose of the law. What was the purpose? The law was our schoolmaster. Was it our standard by which to be perfect? Was it our standard by which you may gain access to heaven? Absolutely not. The law was our what? Schoolmaster. Why? To bring us unto Christ. That we might be justified by faith. Verse 25. But after that faith is come. We are what? No longer under what? A schoolmaster. What did verse 24 say the schoolmaster was? The law. You know what happens the moment that a person gets born again free? The law has no burden over your eternal destiny. I don't know about you, but that's a relief to me. 
because that means I'm not going to have to stand before God and he's not going to hold the law up here and then hold my life up here. Because if that was the case, in order to gain access into heaven, there would not be a single person that's ever been born that could ever qualify to enter into that perfect place. Because none of us, as the Bible says, have ever been righteous. So I'm thankful that at the moment that a person trusts Christ, then that new birth, he is born again free. Free from what? Free from the burden of the law and the standard by which it exacts. The second benefit I see of being born again free is found in Acts 22 and verse number 22. Now we're going to skip through here and see a lot of references. This is an incredible thing. I love how when you study and, and zero in on a passage and you read it over and over and over again as you're studying it for whatever reason, it's amazing the things that maybe you've seen but they've never just clicked. Several things in this passage for the first time I clicked. And one of those was how endangered Paul's life was by the Jews. Look at verse number 22. We read this uh, when we got started. And they gave him audience unto this word and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. This is the Jews' perception of Paul. For it is not what? Fit that he should live. Look at chapter 23, verse number 10. And when they arose, a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul, look at this, should have been what? Pulled in pieces by them. And in verse 22 in the previous chapter, they're so mad, they throw off their clothes. They just start chucking dust in the air. I'm not quite sure what that meant. Other than it just shows the madness of these people. And the Bible says that the chief captain went in there and with violence wrenched Paul out of there to save his life. And then here it is again. Just a few little bit later, Paul asks, hey, I want to speak to them, which is amazing because they were just trying to kill him. And Paul asked the chief captain, hey, I got a message for him. You want to let me speak to him? And the chief captain's like, sure, I guess you can speak. And so he starts speaking again. And then verse 10, they're like trying to pull him in pieces. Look at verse number 12. So the chief captain gets him out of there. Verse 12, and when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had what? Killed Paul. And we know the story that takes place. Paul's nephew hears them conspiring. He goes to the centurion who takes him to the chief captain. He goes to Paul who sends him to the chief captain. And when the chief captain hears of the plot against Paul's life, he's, he escorts him out of Jerusalem in the middle of the night, which we'll look at a little bit later. Look at chapter 25. The Jews are not done. Paul, by this point, is no longer in Jerusalem. He's in Caesarea. The, 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 the Romans have escorted him out of Jerusalem to save his life. And the Jews uh, have followed to Caesarea. Chapter 25, verse 3. Uh, then Verse 2. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired favor against him. This is the Festus thought favor against him, that he would send for him to Jerusalem. They're saying, hey, listen, we need you to send Paul to Jerusalem. Because, listen, that's where our courts are. That's where our judgment hall is. And we would like to try him in our courts. Hey, look, uh, they, they even had this, this orator that they set up, Tertullus. And his whole purpose was to uh, uh, butter up Festus in order for him to release Paul back to Jerusalem. 
And they're saying, listen, we need to go back to Jerusalem. Well, we want to try him and we want to do this thing lawfully. I mean, the Romans had a lot of problems, but one of the things they did have set in, in place, and it wasn't always just, but they did have a court of law and they had certain things and things that had to abide by. And look at what the end of verse number three, laying weight in the way to what? Kill him. Verse number 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all men which are here present with you, see, ye see this man about whom all the multitudes of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. I think you get the point. Paul was under the sentence of death. You know the second advantage I see? Being born again free, we are released from the bondage of death. You see, without Paul's citizenship, he would have died several times over. But because he was a citizen of Rome, guess what he was done? He was released from the bondage of death. And I'm here to tell you today that because I am born again of a child of God, I have been released from the bondage of death. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. You say, well, wait a minute. You're saying you're not going to die? That's not what I'm saying. If I was to add a word, I would say I am released from the bondage of the fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 14 mentions this specifically. Verse number 14, Hebrews 2. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Jesus Christ, also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death, there's two things that is accomplished. More than two things. But in this passage, two things highlighted through the death of Christ. Number one, that he might destroy him. That had the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus Christ in his death destroyed not only the devil, but he delivered us from the fear of the bondage of death. Aren't you glad that through salvation, not only am I delivered from spiritual death, but through Jesus Christ and his grace, I can be delivered from even the bondage of the fear of death. As has been said by many, I, I've done much studying into life of atheists and those that have claimed uh, there is no God and all of that kind of stuff. Hey, without, a, without an exception, you look at the death testimonies of those that claim there is no God. And they are terrified, they're screaming, they're, 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 they're doing all types of horrendous things. Why? Because in the face of death, there is no answer. But I'm telling you this, you find a child of God that knows that his time is close. Hebrews chapter 2 verse number 15 is so abundantly clear. You can walk into that room where death is imminent, death can be felt. And guess what you do not find? You do not find a bondage to the fear of death. Yes, death is scary. Nobody looks forward to it. Nobody is excited the day they die. But the reality is, through the blood of Christ, through being born again, I can be released from the bondage of the fear of death. Knowing this, that when I die, I'm going to a better place. I'll be honest with you. I'm very young. 
We started having kids. I was 13, which means I'm 30. No, I'm very young, and I'll be really honest with you. I don't wake up every day thinking, today would be a good day to die. I don't look forward to that. I'll be honest with you. God's been so good to me. Sometimes I feel bad. I don't look forward to heaven enough. This is honesty. Ah, that could change tomorrow. My health could fail. And God could give me abundant more reasons why I shouldn't be on this planet earth. But I'll be relieved. God's been so good to me. He's blessed me so much. I have a loving family. I have children that say they respect me. Ah. <laughs> I have, I have a ministry that gives my life purpose. I've made mistakes I wish I hadn't. And those are the things that draw me to want to go to heaven. But I'm telling you, I don't just wake up going, I can't wait to go. I don't. I haven't suffered enough. But I know this, that when that time comes, because I'm born free, there's going to be a grace because it's promised. There's going to be a mercy that I can't explain. Why? Because through the death of Jesus Christ, I have been released from the bondage of the fear of death. And just as Paul was released from that fear of death because of his citizenship as a Roman, I have been released from that the moment my name was punched into heaven. Not only do I see the born free benefit of being redeemed from the burden of the law, being released from the fear of the bondage of death. But lastly, I see the benefit that we are reserved safe by the bidding of a greater. Look at Acts chapter 22, if you would. Verse number, I'm sorry, Acts 23, not 22. Acts chapter 23, verse number 23. We already mentioned earlier in this chapter where the Jews had conspired. We will not eat. We will not do anything. We will not do, uh, until Paul is dead, I'm not going to eat. All I know is they broke that promise. I'm just saying. Uh, how many of you guys ever promised, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to eat. And then 10 o'clock rolls around, right? It's been all, of, you've been up for four hours. And you're like, okay, I'm going to eat. Uh, 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 these guys were committed to the death of Saul, but I guarantee they were not that committed because he lived, depending on who you look, two to four more years. I'm pretty sure you didn't come back 40 days later and these guys are walking around like toothpicks. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, I think we, we didn't mean we won't eat at all. Yeah. We just meant we wouldn't eat as long as he's in Jerusalem. And now he's in Caesarea. The reality is we, we see that they had made this, this promise. We're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. And the chief captain finds out, all right, these Jews are going to kill Paul. If he stays where he is, they're going to find a way to conspire to kill him. And the chief captain was not overly, he didn't really care for the life of Paul. That wasn't what was driving him. He cared for the fact that he was put in charge of this area. And if a Roman citizen was killed on his watch, there was going to be a price to pay. And that was his concern. So that being his concern, look at what he does in verse 23. And he called unto him two centurions saying, make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea. A centurion was a charge of 100 men each. So he gets two of them, 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea. And horsemen, 
Three score and ten. Seventy. And spearmen, two hundred. And we're going to leave at three o'clock in the morning. So, we're going to do this at night. We're going to do it when nobody's watching. And he's going to be guarded by almost 500 trained Roman soldiers. Here's the point. Nothing was going to happen to Paul that the Romans didn't want to happen. And you know what happens the moment you punch your ticket into the citizen of the kingdom of God? Nothing is going to happen to you that isn't authorized by the man in charge. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Life's going to have trials. Life's going to have troubles. But isn't it a comfort knowing that no matter the difficulty, as long as I'm born into His kingdom, He knows, He's allowed it, and there's a good purpose. I'm not saying it's going to make you excited about the trial. I'm not saying it's going to make you want more trials to come. But there's a great comfort knowing that I have been reserved safe until I reach the final destination. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us. What's begotten us? What's another word for begotten? Born. Isn't that born again again? Born, begotten us when? Again. Hey, born again. There it is. Unto a lively hope. How? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what extent? To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. Reserved in heaven for you. Here it is. Who are what? Kept by the power of God, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know what those verses tell me? I have a final destination that has been certain since the moment I was born again, and nothing can deter me along that journey. I see three things I'd like to point out will be done about this reservation. Number one, this reservation is promised by the resurrection of a Savior. Which means this, this is a promise that there does not exist a power great enough to take it away. The only way that my salvation could ever be in jeopardy is if a sinless, spotless God would come, be born, die, sinless, and then raise himself from the dead, and then say, all right, Jesus Christ, I have something to say to thee. And since that's not a possibility, my eternal destiny is for certain. Because why? It's promised by resurrection of Savior. Not only that, this reservation is preserved by a righteous sanctuary. You see, what is it that makes things cease to exist here? The presence of sin. Right? When sin... Is finished, it bringeth forth. You know why it's not possible for the world to be getting better? Because sin makes things worse. 
This is the fundamental flaw of evolution. All right? It has, it's fundamentally flawed on every fundamental. But this is the fundamental flaw of evolution. Why? Because there is sin in the world. It cannot be getting better. But there is a place where sin has never been. And the Bible says there it will not fade away. That means the reservation that has been made for me will, if I were to live on this earth a million years, then my home in that heaven would still be there because it fadeth not away. Ah, the third thing I see here is this reservation, not only promised by a resurrection Savior, preserved by right sanctuary, but my most important, my favorite, it is presently taking up reserved space. You know, anybody ever been, you know, just we had this graduation just last week, and we had this side, these two front rows were reserved, and these front two rows were reserved. Now, there was no reserved signs, but nobody was sitting in them because they were reserved. But then about 10 minutes before services, a couple people sat in them. You know what's very disconcerting? When you think, all right, there's a reason nobody's sitting there because everybody, there's 25 people in every row except those two. <laughs> I mean, did they not clean those rows? Why are, they, why are they empty? And so, you know, for obvious reasons, people started sitting there. That wasn't a problem. There was not reserved seating there, but they were reserved. And it's very disconcerting. Someone comes and goes, excuse me, sir. That's reserved. How many of y'all love those moments? No, no, nobody likes those moments. You know what I really like, though? I, I like when, when I've been invited to a dinner or I've made a reservation. I, I really like to show up. Hello, Mr. Simpson. It's really good to have you. Thank you for coming to dine with us tonight. What, can I take your coat? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> My car's out back if you'd like to wash it. I, 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 my wife gets no kick out of this, but it, it thrills my heart. I, I think it's because I have such a big ego, and I like it. I like going to those fancy restaurants. Good evening, Mr. Simpson. It's so good to have you. And, and they take you to your reserved spot. Nobody can sit there. Why? Because it's reserved for you. You know what makes it even better than just having a reserved space? is when you show up and your name is on that spot. You want to get somebody at ticked off, park in their reserve spot. <laughs> Why? Because it's innate within us. We like to have a reserved space with our name. You know what 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 tells me? I have a reserved space. There's a space up in heaven that has a, that has a house, a really, really nice house that doesn't have to have any fixing on it. And no remodeling needs to be done. It's perfect. It's exactly the way I want it. You say, well, how do you want it? I don't know, but it's perfect. <laughs> Ask my wife. She'll tell me how I want it. <laughs> hey, all I know is there's a place in heaven. Nobody can live there. Amen. Nobody gets to take a tour. Yes, sir. Nobody gets to say, ooh, that looks good. I want to go in there. No. You know why? Because it's got... My name on it. You say, well, how do you know it has your name? I just want to think it does. <laughs> but there has been a space that's been reserved for me the moment I got saved. You know, God's not still building. He doesn't take, 
I don't know if you've read creation. It doesn't take him a long time to build stuff. <laughs> this idea that God is building a mansion, like he's got workers up there that are perfect in every way, fashioning. No. The moment I got saved, boom, mansion right there. Robert Simpson, do not enter. And you know what? In God's mind, there's a date when I'm going to take up space. And I don't know what that date is, but I know this. It's been reserved since the moment I trusted Christ. And it's going to be reserved the moment I get there. And I'm thankful that because of that day, I punched my ticket to heaven. There's not just a, a, a potential place. There's a preserved space that's only for me and nobody else can take it. Why? Because that's what God does for those that choose him. I'm glad that my reserve space is presently taking space. They're not building skyscrapers. God's not going to go, well, I need that space for something. No, that space is reserved. See, Paul's birth couldn't be bought. Couldn't be earned. It was given to him by the sacrifice of another. The new birth that Jesus Christ offers. It can't be bought. It can't be earned. And it is gifted because of the sacrifice of another. John chapter 1 verse number 12 says this, But as many as received him, to them gave he power. To what? To become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, verse 13, takes it a step further and says, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you've never been born again free, you can do that today. And maybe you could sing the song that says, I'm free from the guilt that I carried. From the dull, empty life, I'm set free. For when I met Jesus, he made me complete. He forgot the foolish man I used to be. I'm free from the fear of tomorrow. I'm free from the guilt of the past. For I've traded my shackles for a glorious song I'm free. Praise the Lord, free at last. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life. Lord, without a doubt, there's somebody here this morning. They're living the life of a freedman. They're trying to do right. They want to do right. They, they're not just trying to live a terrible life, but... God, they're clinging to things to gain access to heaven that at the end of the day is extremely limited in its benefits here on this earth and has no value when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. Father, would your convicting power reign true in their hearts and lives? Would you take your word, would you bring great conviction Would you help them to understand their need this morning of this new birth?
this new beginning, this new creature that only Jesus Christ can give. Would the Holy Spirit of conviction fall heavily upon this place?